This is Corolla Digital. Hey, you guys, it's me, Allison, from Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with this week's guest, Lauren Savon. Lauren, why should they listen this week? Allison, where to begin? We get secrets on how your hair stays so shiny and lush. Also, I tell you what my favorite people on Twitter are like and how you get to meet them in person. And we can discuss why you and I have never actually hung out. <laughs> yes, and and don't forget where to go to the bathroom and some disgusting bathroom stories from being a field reporter. How could we forget? Absolutely. I mean, I feel like you already have. Subscribe to Allison Rosen <laughs> as your new best friend on iTunes or go to AllisonRosen.com. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. I love you. From Level 5 City in Glendale, it's This Week with Larry Miller. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who can't wait to go back to school. Hi, folks, and welcome back to This Week with Larry Miller. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And again, the band gets better every week. I expect them to get better for another thousand years because they make me feel good. They make me feel happy and ready and grateful to do a show for you. And uh, I can't tell you how happy they... Of course, uh, that's the Sheldon Hambrick Orchestra and the Lauren Bacall Dancers featuring boy tenor John Chupek asking the musical question, If you're in cahoots, how do you get out? Well, that's a pretty good question. Colonel Jeff and I thought that that's a question that needs to be answered. And let me just, let me just say first, it's... Great to have Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris back from their vacations. We were on vacation last week, and uh, they deserve a vacation just like anyone else. And uh, Colonel Jeff did some some things that were also work. He was at a car race that Adam Carolla was in. And uh, they were driving, by the way, that Paul Newman's 1988 Nissan 300ZX, and uh, that is the kind of car name I had to write down. You can't just say, it's a Camaro. So uh, that's what Adam was driving, did a great job apparently, and uh, he would have won, would have come in first, except there are five cheaters ahead of him, and uh, so he came in sixth, he ran a great race, and uh, Dr. Uh, Colonel Jeff, rather, Dr. Chris wasn't there because Dr. Chris's vacation, it's worth saying this. I know that uh, it's not the kind of thing you want to bandy about too much, but uh, he went to the moon. There's a service today you may not know about, and uh, it's where they can take just civilians like Dr. Chris to the moon. And it, sure, it takes a while. Not as long as the astronauts took, though. They've really made some great progress. And you can get there in about 40 minutes. But it's the moon, and you get off the same way, and you get to say something, just like Neil Armstrong did. You, as you come down out of the capsule, 
and sort of put your foot on the ground, if that's what you call the moon. You put it on the moon and you get to say, of course, Neil Armstrong said that that classic, that's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. And uh, Dr. Chris, something that we'll have soon on a plaque here on the walls at the studio, Dr. Chris put both feet down and and just blurted out, I think this was a waste of time and money. But that's far more important to me and to Colonel Jeff than anything any real astronaut said. And uh, Dr. Chris had a good time up there. They did that hopping around the moon thing that's so nice. He's, hey, look at that. You can jump. It's about 15 feet per jump, and you go hopping around. And then you think, whoa, maybe we can stop in at a bar. And you realize, well, there are no bars. It's the moon. Well, maybe I can meet a nice woman at the bar. Oh, that's right. There are no bars because it's the moon. But that's a pretty great vacation. And uh, Dr. Chris went to the moon. And uh, next year he said, well, I'll just tell you because you're family and you can know. Next year he said he's thinking about going to Pluto. That's right. And that takes uh, longer than 40 minutes, though, I'll tell you that. It takes about an hour. And they, we hear that by next, this time next year, they should have a bar and they should have women waiting to meet you on Pluto. So in any case, that's, uh, they were there from vacation. And, well, we're glad to have, have them back. And uh, you know something? It's worth mentioning. Uh, I just put in Lauren Bacall's name uh, because, God bless her, she did pass away and, uh, heck, she was 94 years old or something. And just what a career, what a life she had. And holy mackerel, if you see that first movie she was in, and that was directed by William Wyler, and it was To Have and Have Not, which was starring Humphrey Bogart, and that's where she and Humphrey Bogart met and fell for each other and got married until, uh, well, 1957 when Mr. Bogart got very sick and died. But at that point, I'll tell you what, when you see there's a great story in show business about Lauren Bacall's career and it's worth passing along to you, maybe you know it because the truth is that when you see her in that movie – and she was just 19 years old. And when she comes in with the head looking a little low and the eyes looking a little up with that uh, come-hither look that became so famous that she did for the first time, that no one else did, that she was known for. It was it a was star-making gesture. And what happened was show business continues to be a funny thing. She was nervous. This is the first time she was on camera. This is the first part she had. And then, in fact, the director already said to Bogart, William Wyler, oh, what a great director he was. And, uh, and a war hero, in fact, from World War I. But you know what? When he said to Bogart, he said, I think you're the most insolent actor in Hollywood. And that was a great compliment. He, he was saying, I think you're tough and fierce and just really not a no just a no nonsense guy and he said that's the way i want to make lauren bacall look in this movie and she was so nervous 
she just really couldn't act. She started to shake on the set, and her head and her jaw began to shake, and her arms and shoulders began to shake. And just to combat the nervousness, she lowered her head. She put her chin down on her chest and looked up with her eyes just to stop herself from shaking due to nervousness. And, well, folks, I'll tell you what, that's that's something that all actors and actresses should find how to do because it made her what she deserves to be, which is a great movie star. In any case, so many great movies with Bogart, so many great movies without Bogart, and then so many Broadway shows she won Tony Awards as a, as a star of Broadway. And I it's just someone, every time I saw her, and I saw To Have and Have Not, oh, coincidentally, just about a month ago. And I'll tell you what, anyone who can look at that, it's a wonderful movie. If you haven't seen it, it's, it's not our Magic Movie Moment movie today. Although, come to think of it, I guess we could have picked that. But it's not our Magic Movie Moment movie today. But if you haven't seen To Have and Have Not, Folks, just see it. It's a great movie. It's a great World War II movie. And what a cast on the side. Hoagie Carmichael is always great. And the great Walter Brennan is wonderful in everything he did. This movie was, I think, from 1944 or 46, something like that. But, folks, just see it. So this is with a smile and a salute. And, uh, boy, God bless you. That's why... It was worth mentioning Lauren Bacall's name. And as you know, uh, the great Robin Williams died this week or last week at the same time, rather. And certainly so much has been and is being said about him. He certainly made us all laugh and he certainly made us all tear up. He was a terrific actor and a terrific comic. And you know what? Always a terrific guy to see smile. And say, hi, how you doing? And you know what? That's so much has been said. And I'll leave it there with uh, with pride. Just to say, good luck to you too. And uh, I'll tell you what though. That, that boy tenor John Chupek did ask a terrific uh, musical question. If you're in cahoots, how do you get out? Well, that's a pretty clever question. Because... I said to Colonel Jeff, okay, now let's look up cahoots. I don't know what, I never knew what it meant to be in cahoots. And it's a good, it's a funny question. If you're in cahoots, how do you get out? But we looked it up, and cahoots means that if you're in sort of a criminal association, if if some guy is, well, a bad guy, and he's figured out a way to rob everyone, who comes into a certain store. And if you're going to be a partner of his, if you're going to be in this crime together, you're in cahoots with him. And I don't know where it came from. I guess I could have read the second paragraph to that. Cahoots, it sounds like something that's roughly, from they thought roughly from England, somewhere around the 1820s. And in any case, if you're in cahoots... How do you get out? If you're in a criminal partnership with someone, how do you get out of that? You just get out. 
You just wake up one day, look in the mirror while you're brushing your teeth and say, I don't believe I need this criminal partnership to make my life happy or to make some money. So good question, John. How do you get in? If you're in cahoots, how do you get out? Only one way. Get out and don't get in. (laughs) That's the best advice I may have today. But we don't know. The show just started. And by Amazon. That's right, Amazon. The greatest company in the world that does things for you and me and everyone. Whatever you want, order it from Amazon. And you know what? They'll send it to you. And you'll be happy and they'll be happy. You know who else will be happy? Me and Colonel Jeff and Dr. Chris. Because when you order something from Amazon... Amazon sends a percentage of it to us. That may be the best news ever. And we put that money toward our next fancy fried chicken dinner. That's right. That's coming up. We, we, I told you about the last one, and we're going to go out for... It's not a fancy restaurant, but the fried chicken was very good. And we went to a bar first and had a couple of drinks. Literally a couple. Just two. And you know what? That was a pretty good night. And that was for for Colonel Jeff, Dr. Chris, and me. So in any case, thank you, Amazon, for that. Go to our website, by the way, LarryMillerPodcast.com. And you know what? That's how you get to Amazon. Don't go to Amazon yourself. Go to our LarryMillerPodcast.com. We have a banner that says Amazon. Click on our banner that says Amazon. And we will take you there. You can go have a nap in your easy chair while we do the work. And you know what? Then the rest happens. Then you wake up and you order anything you want. And by the way, it's a good time to mention, since I mentioned our website, if you like the show, tell a friend. That's right. If you like this show this week with Larry Miller, and you know what? Yeah, tell a friend and say, hey, why don't you become a fan of This Week with Larry Miller. And then, tell the friend, you might even send him something from Amazon. And by PayPal. That's right, the company that's still the most fun to say, PayPal. And it's a great company. They help a lot of people. It's a wonderful place to contribute to. And our favorite way of saying this is go to your favorite bar, go there at 2 in the afternoon when it's empty and there's no one at the bar, and there's no one in the restaurant part, and somebody's sweeping up, and go right up to the bartender and say, hey, how much do you charge for a drink? And whatever the answer is, multiply that by three and send it to us. And that will buy a drink on our fancy fried chicken dinner night. That will buy a drink for Colonel Jeff, Dr. Chris, and me. So remember, there are reasons to love companies, And I think part of the reason I love Amazon and PayPal most is they send us part of it. In any case, do that. Which brings us on to my favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. That's right, the joke of the week. The weekly joke. It's so much fun to tell jokes. You know it, and that's why you listen. That's why you're fans of the show. That's why I'm here. We love jokes. It's good to be a comic It's good to love comics and to really laugh, but it's wonderful to pass along regular jokes. And so, you know what? 
Colonel Jeff found this one, and uh, remember, this is for you, and I hope you like If you like it, pass it on to a friend. Okay, here we go. A cop pulls a guy over for speeding. Wow. It's a good start to a joke. I mean, you know, because we've all had that happen. The cop pulls a guy over for speeding, and the cop does that stroll up to the driver's window that we all know with the boots on and the pad out, and the cop says, may I see your driver's license? And the driver says, sorry, I don't have one. It was suspended when I got my fifth DUI. And the cop blinks a couple of times and looks at him. His fifth DUI? He says, what? Uh, uh, all right, well, well I, may I, I see the, resi- the registration for the vehicle? And the driver says, it's not my vehicle. I stole it. He stole it? The cop is that he stole it? The cop says to him, are you telling me this is a stolen car? That's right. Mind you, now that I think of it, I believe I did see the registration in the glove box when I was putting my gun in there. The cop, the gun? Did you say gun? You put, there's a gun in the glove box? And the driver says, yep, I put it in there after I shot and killed the woman who owns this car. Then I stuffed her in the trunk. There's a body in the trunk? Are you... Yes, sir. Now, when the cop hears this, he says, wait a minute, sit right there. Don't move. And he backs up. He's a little nervous now. He immediately calls his station house. And never mind the sergeant or the lieutenant or any of the officers, any of the detectives. They send him right up to the captain, to the commanding officer. And he tells the captain, within minutes, the car is surrounded by police and the captain approaches the driver so that he can handle the tense situation. And the captain says, Sir, may I see your driver's license? And the driver says, Certainly, here it is. And he hands him his perfect, valid driver's license. And the captain says, Sir, who, who owns this car? I do, officer. Here's the registration. It was his. It's all in order. And the captain says, Sir, slowly open your glove box so I can see if there's a gun in it. Well, yes, sir, but there isn't a gun in it. And sure enough, there's nothing in the glove box. He wasn't lying. And the captain says, Would you mind opening your trunk? I've been informed you said there's a body in it. No problem, officer. And he he opens the trunk, and there is no body. And the captain says, sir, I I don't understand any of this. The officer who pulled you over said you told him you did not have a license, you'd stolen the car, you had a gun in the glove box, and there was a dead body in the trunk. And the driver looks astonished and says, you know what, I'll bet the rotten, lying SOB told you I was speeding, too. That's a long way to go out of a ticket. But I think any captain who's brought his entire police force down there would at that point just say, all right, go on your way. Or maybe he'd take out his gun and just shoot two of the tires. In any case, (laughs) we thought that was a good joke. I hope you like it, too. Pardon me. And that is part of what we call a shaggy dog story. You can make up any of the details. I made them up myself. Anything that 
the officer says to the driver or the driver says to the officer. Or maybe he has some potato chips in the car and he eats a couple of them. Whatever you think you want to add to make the story go along well. And uh, that was our joke of the week. And we'll have another one next week. And that brings us to the second section. I sometimes say my second favorite part of the show. But it's not. It's also a favorite part of the show for me. This is the Poetry Corner. The Corner of Poetry. This is where poems rule the airwaves for a long time. And this is something I always thought, even when I was a kid, boy, if I got a show like this someday, I'd like to have poetry on it. And just so you and I can remember and remind each other that there's a new, different way of thinking out there, of describing our lives, and it's called poetry. And a really great poet from today, from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, any time, poets who are great and great artists really make us feel good by what they're trying to explain. And this one is by Christina Georgina Rossetti. And she was a great poet who was English, born in England in 1820, and died there in 1894. I'm just remembering because I love reading their biographies as well while Colonel Jeff goes to print them out. And this is a poem by her called Echo. And here it is. Come to me in the silence of the night. Come in the speaking silence of a dream. Come with soft, rounded cheeks and eyes as bright as sunlight on a stream. Come back in tears, oh, memory, hope, love of finished years. Oh, dream, how sweet, too sweet, too bittersweet, whose wakening should have been in paradise, where souls brimful of love abide and meet, where thirsting, longing eyes watch the slow door, that opening, letting in, lets out no more. Yet come to me in dreams that I may live my very life again, though cold in death. Come back to me in dreams that I may give pulse for pulse, breath for breath. Speak low, lean low, as long ago, my love, how long ago. Isn't that nice? Good for her. God bless her. That's a wonderful way to think of the memory of a soul looking back on love. Great question for a poet to ask herself, what is love and how might I write about it. And this does bring us to the Triple M, the magic movie moment. It's a movie that I love, that maybe you love too, or a movie sometime that you love and you want us to talk about. And by the way, if that's true, if you have one that has a great scene in it, that has great actors in it, that has a great director, that has a great script, that tells a great story that really moves you. 
It can be comedy. It can be drama. It can be both. And you know what? Please let us know on our website. Once again, LarryMillerPodcast.com. Who's on the mountain? Tom Mix. But let us know, please. And maybe we'll, well, we'll talk about you and we'll talk about the movie you think is a magic movie moment. But here's one I saw just yesterday as well. Boy, oh boy, I've seen this. Oh, it's another one I've seen at least 20 times. It's a terrific movie. It's from 1944, so World War II is still going on, and it was made from a hit Broadway show. And I think it's one It's one of Alfred Hitchcock's first movies. Not the first, but it's one of the first movies he directed. One of the first couple. And it's called Lifeboat. And it's a wonderful movie. Now, it's worth noting that... Oh, what a cast. Tallulah Bankhead, William Bendix, Walter Slezak, John Hodiak, Hume Cronin... Wonderful actors, all of these folks, and they tell such a great story. I can't imagine uh, how this was done on Broadway. It was a huge hit on Broadway, and Tallulah Bankhead was the star on Broadway as well. And this is a great movie. It's black and white, and it's called Lifeboat, and it takes place in the lifeboat. They never leave the lifeboat. It's in the middle of World War II, and they were sunk by a German submarine, and they wind up rescuing from the ocean one of the officers from the German submarine that sank them. And that's Walter Slezak. What a great actor. He was a great comedian, too. But Walter Slezak as Willie, I think, or Willie, who was the German on the boat. You know something? The thing you should remember about this... Uh, if you've, ever, if you've ever seen the movie 12 Angry Men, it's a great movie. And I've talked about it before, I think. And you know what? It all takes place in the jury room. Start to finish, the movie takes place in the jury room. And they're deciding the guilt or innocence of a young man. They just saw the trial. And you notice in that movie that... Uh, I think that was Sidney Lumet who directed that. You notice in that movie, even though it's just a very small jury room, they never leave the jury room, but Lumet finds ways to tell that story, and it never gets boring. It's always exciting. He finds new spaces for that camera to lurk, and it's looking over the jury table. It's in the corner where two jurors are talking. It it goes into the washroom, right, in, which is which attaches to the jury room. The point is, a great director finds a way to make it really interesting. And boy, that's what Alfred Hitchcock did in Lifeboat. They never leave that lifeboat. And you might think, how can you film a movie in a lifeboat and never leave it and make it wonderful? And interesting and new, and it really is. Hitchcock finds spaces and sides and almost little corners in that boat where he can tell that story and what a great story it is. And the reason it struck me so much, it's a great movie, but the reason it also became a magic movie moment for me, sometimes it's love 
as a magic movie moment. Sometimes it's, well, a lesson learned. Sometimes it's great acting. Sometimes it's a great script. But in this, for me, it's a great part of the story. Because at the end, they rescue another. Now a German ship has been blown up by the Allies, by the armed forces who are, we know, ultimately going to rescue all of the friends we've come to love in the lifeboat. And they pull a young fella in from the ocean who was not killed in the giant explosion. He's a German sailor. And they pull him in. And we see the magic movie moment for me in this movie is what they've learned in this story. Because we see that the young German sailor is, well, he's a manipulator. He's a bit of a liar. He doesn't, he's afraid of them. He tries to think maybe I could win over them. Maybe I can beat them all. He's got a weapon on him and he takes it out. And we see, though, they've learned their lesson. They've learned a lot in this movie. And they find a way to beat that sailor. And then we see that they're better people than they've ever been because of the story they've just told us. And there's nothing better than a magic movie moment to make you think. And I was doing that this past week because school is about to start again. Now, school doesn't have the same thing it had when I was growing up, when Colonel Jeff was growing up. School was after Labor Day. It's a wonderful time of the years to think that, and Dr. Chris is nodding too now, that school was after Labor Day. Everyone in America, public school, private school, whatever it was, summer went by, then it climaxed in a great Labor Day weekend, and then school started. All schools started after Labor Day. Well, here in Los Angeles, the Los Angeles School District has been open two weeks now. I think that's full regular school. The schools are open. It's, it's a wonderful way to run a school system. Let's see. The schools are terrible. Why don't we start soon? In any case, they're open all over America and all over the world. I mean, schools are opening long before Labor Day. And my, one of my kids, uh, our youngest, is uh, going to school again, I think, next week. I should know this, but I... It's one of those father things. As long as mom knows it, it'll get done. But you know what? The school is starting sooner than it should. And, well, Colonel Jeff and I started remembering what it was like to, one, number one, to go through the summer and get to Labor Day. It really was a victory to get to Labor Day. No matter how old you were, second grade, fifth grade, ninth grade, it didn't matter if you got to Labor Day, to the Labor Day weekend, you'd say, you know what? I made it again. That's a great thing for a kid to think. I made it again. Because kids think of summer differently than adults. Of course, you know, that, 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 that that's true. It has to be true. We all think of summer differently. In our school district, there was a kindergarten to sixth grade school that I went to. And just across a field, about a football field size field, was 
the junior high and high school, they were in one school. It was grades 7 through 12. And I remember every year as summer approached, well, kids really look forward to that summer. You get into May and the school ends around, well, the middle of June somewhere and uh, or closer to the end of June, I think, in our day. But you know what? There was something that happened. All the seniors in high school, in our school system there, were allowed. It was something they did every year. And all the high school kids, too. So it was officially grades 10, 11, and 12. They were allowed to throw out all the paper from their notebooks. Not the notebooks, not the regular books, just the loose-leaf paper. And they threw it out on the field. And there was a covering on that field that we used to love to see from our elementary school windows. Just there they go. We looked forward to it every year. All the kids, that's, that field was covered. And I don't mean with one piece of paper. I mean it was like fresh snow on skiing mountains that was thigh deep. And it was so much fun to see that pile of papers. Now, remember, this is 150 yards long and 100 yards wide, and it is covered thigh deep in loose-leaf paper. Boy, that was great. And the teachers thought it was great, too. That was before, by the way, the normal adult reaction of whatever they're doing, it has to be stopped. They're enjoying it too much. We loved it. They loved it. And it was a real gesture we looked forward to every year. And that meant we were really close to summer vacation. It was something we wanted so much that every kid wants so much. And we had a chance. That paper was on the ground for at least a week. And there were two reasons for that. One, because the the imagery, the poetry of it being on the ground thrilled us, and we wanted it there longer than just a couple of hours. The other reason, the main reason is, no one picked it up. That was the main thing. No one picked it up. There were no custodians who went out there to pick it up. It was known no one was going to pick it up. And that was fine with everyone. It really was with the adults as well as the kids. Oh, the paper eventually just, well, it drifted away. You know what? That was a lot of paper, but it drifted away on its own. No one was hurt by it. And boy, oh boy, we looked forward to that summer so much the way every kid should. And you know what? When we, they let us also think, being in a whole summer like that, it let us also think about what does back to school mean? What does it mean to go back to school? My uh, kid, our 15-year-old, got a haircut a couple of days ago on the weekend. And his hair was really long. Like, really, really long. Like, rock star in Shakespeare's time, long. Like, very long. And he got a what he should get, which is a regular haircut, so that it's now a half inch or an inch long. And I was saying to Colonel Jeff before, it's good that kids do that, because they should have a certain, even a little bit of respect for the fact that school is starting. So the teachers get to see... This kid's not a complete idiot. He's not coming in here like a slob. At least his parents are smart enough to get him in for a haircut. 
And that's the truth, because if a kid comes in looking for like a slob, don't you have to think, well, what do the parents look like? And it's not just a haircut, but, you, you know, you clip everything. You clip all the nails. You get the face and the ears clean. School's starting. And you get new clothes. You get back-to-school clothes. We got back-to-school clothes when I was a kid. Because also, I don't know about you, but in my day, this was before we were allowed to wear jeans or sneakers or T-shirts. We were not allowed to wear jeans or sneakers or T-shirts. And this was public schools, but I think that was a good idea. That at least you make the kids look like they know what they're doing. Even if they don't know what they're doing, you make them look really good. And it makes the kids, for crying out loud, what are we worried about so much today? Having school clothes makes the kids look equal. It doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor. If they all have, if the boys are wearing khaki pants and the girls are wearing plaid skirts and knee socks and everybody has a button-down shirt on, I think that's pretty good. And they get a haircut and they wash up and their hands are clean. I think that's a good way to start school again. After Labor Day. But I'll tell you what, and Colonel Jeff and I were remembering, there was no air conditioning in the schools in those days either. So no one cared. No one was, you know, no one was causing riots. But around April and starting in May, it was pretty hot in those schoolrooms. You, uh, you could see the air move in the room. That's how hot it got. And you know what? We were close to, this is on Long Island, we were close to the beach, and I wanted to tell you a story about it. We were close to the beach on the south shore of Long Island. Well, not so close. You wouldn't want to have to walk it. It was probably 15 miles away, something about like that. Yeah, that sounds about right, about 15 miles away. And one day in the middle of summer... I guess I was about 17, and my friend Billy Walsh and I decided to take Billy's parents' car, and we were going to drive to the beach. It was a weekday, and we were both 17 or 18, no, 17, and uh, we got into Billy's parents' car, which was a dark blue Dodge. It was a four-door Dodge sedan, I think a Coronet. I could be wrong, though. And we drove down to one of the beaches on Atlantic Beach, and we spent a couple hours there. You know, in the end, it's not that exciting to be on a beach, frankly. I mean, if there are 350 young, lovely 11th grade girls there in bikinis, then that's what an 11th or 12th grade boy wants to see. But we had a fine time. We were there a couple of hours, and... We got in the car to leave. Now, this is about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, which is a full day at the beach. And uh, Billy and I, Billy's driving. It's his parents' car. So Billy and I start to drive along, I think it was Atlantic Beach Boulevard, and a car pulls up on our left side, and it's two guys we knew from high school. It was Danny Drum and Mike Scully, and we knew them, and they were in... Well, I they had a car, and uh, we were glad to see them. Hey, and so we start talking out the windows. Hey, what's going on? 
Well, where do you want to go? We were at a beach. Yeah, we were at a beach, too. Where do you want to go? Well, we thought we'd stop off at a bar. And we thought we'd stop off and we'd get a beer at a bar. This was when the drinking age in New York, by the way, was still 18. It didn't really matter that much anyway. You could be The drinking age could have been 30. But we, we were going to go get a beer, and they, they, they would have been fine with that. But as we're talking, in uh, Billy and me in our car and Mike and Danny in their car, a car behind both of ours, a 64 Chevy, I remember, hardtop, with all four windows down and four guys in it with, oh, let's see, beards and black hair and uh, music playing on the radio. And uh, they pull up on the other side of Danny and yell something about, hey, what are you doing? You're blocking the road. Hey, go on and get out of here. Hey, hey, hey. And then they roared off past. Now, Danny and Mike, it's worth saying, were, well, they were strong. They were tough guys. They weren't afraid of anything. And, uh, well, you could follow them before. Whatever they said, they would be the leaders of whatever was going on. Billy and I were the same in lots of ways. That's lots of ways. That's one of the reasons we were, we were good friends. But as far as fights went, as far as fights of one or two or five or ten or whatever it was, when it came to fights, Billy and I had a motto, which is, we never run. Now... That may not sound like much to you, but it was important to us. We never run because we wanted to run. We weren't really good fighters, but we knew to be part of our group, to be part of any group, to be part of the team, part of the crowd, you couldn't run. And if you were needed, you'd be part of it. And that's what we knew, and that's what we knew then, and that's fine. We're not going to run. We hoped... We always hoped if it came to a fight, and when it came to a fight, and it did sometimes, that we always hoped we would be paired up with the guys on the other side who never run. We were hoping it would be the guys like us. who So at least they could say, we never run, and we could say, we never run, and we got paired up together, and then we could punch each other for a while, and it would hurt, and you'd bleed, but it wouldn't kill you. But that didn't happen much. Usually we got paired up with the, well, the Danny and Mike of the other side. And uh, you could get pretty bopped around. But we knew something might start here. And sure enough, the car with the four guys in it, the 64 Chevy, roared ahead of both of our cars. And before we got to the Atlantic Beach Bridge, they pulled up in the middle of the road at an angle and just, and stopped and... All right, here we go. This is going to happen now. This is going to be a fight because the driver of their car got out and started walking back to our cars and doing that posture, that pose of with the hands held out and the head shaking of, hey, what are you going to do about it? Hey, what are you going to do about it? And he didn't take one thing into consideration. Mike got out of the car. Mike was driving. We Both of our cars pulled up, and Billy and I knew we never run and we took our seatbelts off. We started to get out of the car, but Mike was fast. Mike got out of his car. Danny got out too, but Danny realized it's only four guys, and Mike could handle this, and he really could. Mike was about 6'4", and an awfully nice guy, had a great laugh, but if you saw his face before a fight, you'd realize this is not the guy I want to be matched with.
He was a, he was a great athlete and a tough guy. And, by the way, very, very strong. I call him Liam Neeson strong. That's the way I think of some guys like that. In other words, it's not like he was pumped up uh, as if he'd been in a gym or, you know, a pump-up for Mr. Olympic. He, he hadn't been. He had those Liam Neeson arms, the long arms. He was a good wrestler and a good football player and tough. And that's the kind of build he has so that when you saw him coming and this guy who was driving the other car was walking back with that what are you going to do about it? Look, and he was with a tough expression on his face, and Mike was striding right at him. They're about fifty feet away, and Mike was coming right at him, and he stops and starts to say something like, "Oh, what are you? What are you going to do about it? What's? What do you think you're doing?" And then he realized he got a good look at Mike. He finally got a good look at this guy striding at him, and he realized. This was not a good idea. And to his credit, he didn't hold his hands up as if to say stop. He didn't start talking of, hey, maybe we can talk this out. He didn't say, look, we made a mistake here. This doesn't have to happen. He just kind of stood there, thought for a second, and we're looking right at him. We still hadn't gotten out of our car. And as Mike walked up to him, in a powerful way, the guy, to his credit, the guy didn't move, didn't kind of go down on one knee, didn't do anything. He just stood there, and Mike, whew, boy, he hit him with a real straight punch, arm cocked back like a piston. Bang! He hits this guy, and this guy drops like a puppet. It's like someone cut the strings. He drops in the middle of the road. Mike, one punch, by the way, one punch. The guy's gone, out cold. Mike doesn't even break stride, doesn't stop to look. He keeps walking to the car, to the other guy's car. And remember, there are three guys in that car. We could see them. that They were like silhouette cutouts. There was like three, you know, black cutout shapes of cardboard. And he starts coming. And to their credit, they didn't get out either. They didn't say, all right, hey, hold it. Hold on here now. They sat in the car. Mike closes the other 10 feet or 15 feet to the car. Folks, and Danny's there, sort of the sophisticated of the group. Danny is there just shaking his head because he knows this is all going to be fine because it's Mike. And uh, Mike goes over to the first guy in the back seat on the left-hand side. Mike reaches in, grabs him by the shirt, and we just see this, remember, from, from our car. And he, again, cocks a, the same hand, a right punch back, straight back, bam, his hand disappears into the car and clobbers this guy. And the guy, same thing, the silhouette we saw just disappears. This guy goes down and his, Mike now continues walking, goes around the back end of that car and to the other guy in the other back seat. And this guy starts to hold his hands up as if to talk, as if to say something. Mike, same thing, cocks a punch back, bam, it, the hand just fires into that open window. Same thing. This guy crumbles inside the car. He disappears. Now Mike goes up a couple of steps to the front passenger seat. There's one guy left. Same thing. The hand goes back. Bang! And it's out. Four guys, four punches, done. And Billy and I were in our car, and we looked at each other and just said, Whoa. 
because that's what you'd say. And Mike walks back to the car now, and he's got his smile on again. Not not a proud smile, just, hey, hi. And uh, Danny says, you feel better now? And uh, they both came over to us, and they said, all right, well, let's uh, want to go somewhere and get a beer. And we said, sure. And we went somewhere, and we got a beer. And I think it was in Hewlett on Long Island. But you know something, folks? The point of the story is not that I can't even remember where we went or how long we stayed. I think we had just one beer and said, okay, we'll see you. And then Billy and I just drove back home and he dropped me off and he took his parents' car back. But, folks, where we went or what we drank isn't the point of the story. The point is seeing someone like Mike get out of that car and unfold himself at 6'4", and let those arms drop to that Liam Neeson length and have them swing as he starts marching toward this guy. And the story is really about the look on that guy's face when he realized, "Uh uh-oh, this was not a good idea. So you know what? (laughs) That's what a day at the beach meant to us. And, boy, that's what knowing someone from school meant we were always in school with them and it didn't matter we all had the same clothes and nothing mattered on thursdays all boys wore white shirts and a tie it didn't matter again what what your father did for a living or where you lived what mattered was everyone had a white shirt and a tie they didn't have to be fancy and they weren't And everyone had khaki pants, and they didn't have to be fancy, and they weren't. And everyone had shoes, not sneakers, and not penny loafers, just lace shoes that you laced up. And you know what? We all looked the same way, and we all were the same. Until someone like Mike got out of his car and started marching toward you. Then you realize, wow, they're not the same at all. And... You know something? That's what it means to me to get this other kid ready for school. I know he's going to look right. He's got the right haircut. He's going to be shampooed. He's going to be washed and brushed. And ears are going to be clean. And he has new school clothes that my wife got him. And it's the same thing. It doesn't matter. It's not that they're fancy, but it's khaki pants and shoes that tie up, and although they can wear sneakers, and he probably will, and it's got a button-down shirt with it, and uh, and a sweater with the school logo on it if he wants, and you know what? He's going to have a great year. Our other son is in the Marines, as you know, but that's another story. So we know the same things, you and I. If you like our show, tell a friend, and remember... Homer is Homer, and Pluto is a planet. So remember, as always... If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and a home to come back to and someone there who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that's the truest thing I know. I hope all your kids have a good year at school, and we'll see you here next week.